I knew something was going to happen one day, but I didn't tell it was going to come this far. Never. We do not live in an animal kingdom. We have rules. Dwayne asked James if he was going to shoot. And what did James say? Yes. This concept of vigilante justice is just never right. There's no winner here. The damage breakdowns in the middle of the boat. I would call that uh, beat, my lord. When you grow up in a fishing area, there's one thing you know of, and it's not the steal from a fisherman. We did what we did. It wasn't right. It definitely wasn't right for them to kill him over lobster, though. That's like murder, that's torture. He tortured a man before he died. I could never understand people coming up to me and saying he got what he deserved. There was a, a line right down the middle, just tore the community apart. Today on the phone, we have director Megan Wenberg. We're going to be talking about the documentary film The Killing of Philip Boudreau. The story is of a death that tore apart the Nova Scotia community of Isle Madame, a postcard-perfect collection of Acadian fishing villages off the coast of Cape Breton. It's part of CBC's Docs POV series, but you'll also be able to screen it on the CBC Gem app. Megan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I watched the film already. It's a fascinating oh, piece. I have to tell you, I'm like, I, I wanted more. But we'll, we'll get into that, I guess, later. Let's give the audience some context about it. And I don't mean I wanted more in a bad way. Uh, let's take this. <laughs> let's take them back to the morning of June 1st, 2013 for the audience. You know, even though I guess, you know, this really isn't where the story began. But it is the day when Philip Boudreaux lost his life. So let's give people an idea of what the events of that day were beyond, I guess, the mislabeled murder for lobsters. Right. So on June 1st, 2013, as you mentioned, that's the day Philip Boudreaux was killed, um, and he was killed by members of his community in Ile Madame. It was very early morning, but because it was June, it was already bright out, so it was a beautiful, beautiful, calm, sunny morning, and I believe just after 6 a.m., 6.30, the fishing boat, the twin Maggie, spotted Philip in the distance at their traps, at their lobster traps. And he had been cutting their traps and poaching their lobster all season and the seasons before, and he'd been doing it other fishermen um, for decades. And that morning, they snapped. And they started firing at him and ended up ramming his tiny boat with their much larger, much larger lobster boat and eventually dragged him out to sea and sent him down. That was the end of Philip Boudreaux. Um, his body was never recovered. But for people in the community who hadn't heard the gunshots and didn't know what was happening, people assumed initially that Philip had just gone off to hide out in the woods because that's something he did fairly regularly when he was on the law or when he'd angered someone in the community. So at first, people weren't actually that concerned and it was only kind of as the day wore on and Philip, there was no sign of Philip and his ball cap and his rubber boots started washing ashore that people realized that something really bad had happened this time. About six days later, I believe the crew of the Twin Nineties were arrested and then eventually de facto captains to trial for second degree murder. You use this film to examine the trial and the murder of Philip Boudreaux, but you know, there are so many more layers to this story. 
So tell us about the culture of the Nova Scotia community of uh, Ile Madame and how Philip Boudreau connected to that community. Um, Ile Madame is an amazing community. It's an Acadian community off the south coast of Cape Breton. There's so many warm, welcoming, amazing people there. It's extraordinarily beautiful um, because it's surrounded by water. It's a series of islands kind of connected by causeways, but everywhere you look, the ocean is is never far. So it's it's really beautiful. Um, It relies strongly on like fishing, being sustainable and thriving as a community. So that's a very important industry. And as I was told um, when meeting people there, like you, when you grow up in a fishing community, you learn you don't steal uh, from a fisherman because you're really, you're kind of cutting your own throat in the end. But Philip, from what I was told for most of his life, he kind of made his living stealing from fishermen. Like he would poach lobster, he would damage traps, he would cut traps so they'd completely lose them. So at that point, you can understand kind of how things came to a head when that people's livelihood um, that someone's regularly messing with. But what I learned sort of in speaking to more people in the community is that there was more going on than just Philip being a horrible bully. Philip also had a rough upbringing. Philip had dropped out of school when he was only in grade eight. Um, he was illiterate. He, it sounds like, had mental health issues. Um, and he was also taken advantage of as a young man um, when he was out of school to buy some of the fishermen who would pay him in booze or cigarettes um, or maybe some cash to like go and mess with their competitors traps or poach their competitors lobster so Philip learned at a young age that this was a way he could get by in that community and it worked for some sometimes and definitely not for others depending on who he was kind of targeting and who was paying him to target them. So it was, yeah, just a a really sad story all around. He had his own problems, but he was also sort of a problem that was created as well. And then members of the community eventually got rid of him. We're speaking with director Megan Wenberg, and we're talking about her documentary, The Killing of Philip Boudreau. It's going to be screening as part of CBC Docs POV, but uh, you can probably even more easily access it on the CBC Gem app. You detail how polarizing the murder of Philip Boudreau was and how many people were sympathetic to the choices that James Landry made to become this self-appointed vigilante. But, you know, it's clear in the film that you don't try and sanitize the past transgressions that led up to this incident, like you just talked about. So how challenging was that to kind of balance that in your storytelling when it doesn't seem like there's, you know, clear cut black and white, you know, and a hard line of which which side you should choose, even though the community seems to feel that way most of the time. Yeah, I mean, this was by far the hardest project I have ever tried to make. I mean, it was difficult for a number of reasons, but also just seeing the pain that a lot of people in the community still feel over, obviously, such a tragic event that impacted so many people so deeply. So wanting to try and do right by their stories and also, if possible, shed more light than maybe was able to be included in some of the initial coverage where it was more painted as just murder for lobster, which I think everyone there would agree there was so much more going on than that. It's always challenging to make a film when a community is divided like this one was, and especially where 
it's hard in small communities to speak out. Um, like there were a lot of people that I met while we were there filming who had a lot to say and very strong opinions and very strong feelings, but they did not want to speak on camera ever because they were afraid of what the repercussions could be for them. Like if they said something that might upset or anger someone else in the community, then how that would kind of fall back on them. Um, so we were very lucky and I'm incredibly grateful to those who did who did speak and who did trust strangers with their stories for this film. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you talk about this idea of trust because I think that's always paramount for someone in your position making a film like this. You know, you grew up in New Brunswick. You went uh, to journalism school out there. You've been working out there for a long time. So it was someone that probably has a, a sense of how tight-knit places like this community of Ilmadam in Nova Scotia where Philip was murdered. You know, how did you approach trying to earn their trust to get at the heart of the story. We visited multiple times, like me and my small crew. So me and uh, my cinematographer, Paul McCurdy, and then we had, I think, a different sound guy every trip. But we would go up and I would just talk to whoever wanted to talk to me. Like my big thing was I didn't want to push anyone to be on camera. So if people were willing, then that was great. And we would speak with them. And I just really just hoped that eventually the story and characters would reveal themselves because when we started we had no one so that was really scary going into it like not knowing if anyone was actually going to speak with us but eventually one did and then that kind of led to finding someone else so eventually it did fall in place it was just at the outset yeah I did not know if that was going to happen or not you know you find numerous ways to try and recreate the story as best as you can to give the audience a sense of the trial the investigation and the community itself, you know, when you have to rely on kind of piecing together a story like this, that's already been, that's already happened from so many different points of view, you know, how do you prepare before you even start to get into that community and attempt to attack this story? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, I mean, I did a lot of, a lot of reading and I would watch other films that have handled sensitive or painful issues or crime in small communities, talking to other filmmakers, but really it was dictated for the most part by my experiences in Eel Madame and just trying to get an understanding of what people there had gone through and were still going through. So even with like the, the recreation footage and the court footage, I didn't want to use too much of that because it's not like we wanted to completely rehash everything. It's more just to, to bring it to life enough for the audiences that they can get a sense of what happened and what people went through. So you've, you've kind of had to work this story together and you've had to go inside the com- community and immerse yourself. And, you know, you've returned there numerous times, like you were saying, and shot, I'm sure, a ton of footage. I mean, usually, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the I guess the naive thing about something like this is that they're like, well, you know, you probably have to work with like a few hours, and then like it ends up being hundreds probably, and particularly when you're having to to kind of fill that hour long gap that they want you to have on something on television, right? So talk to us a little bit about the I don't know like the process of having to weed through all the information and having to kind of like piece together the background of these people in order to tell the story appropriately and kind of shoehorn yourself into that time limit what are are the challenges that you face in something like that well definitely the film comes together the most in the edit and I worked for months with an amazing editor Warren Jeffries before the edit begins I review everything like all the footage that we've shot and I think it was maybe closer to 50 hours than 100 but 
certainly a lot and a lot of even just what we call B-roll, where it's just kind of like landscape shots or shots of fishing boats because there were days when no one would talk to us. So we would just be kind of boned and we'd drive around the island and just shoot pretty things because we had nothing else to do. So I study everything and then write down the things that impacted me the most, both when we were filming them and after having watched them, because at that point I'm trying to see it more as a viewer and remove myself from someone who was there and knows all the kind of backstories about everything, just to try and come up with the pieces that are the most impactful and then start trying to structure the story around those. Um, but that's a, like a, that's a building and tearing down process for months. Like we'll do a rough cut and then watch it. And that might seem good at first, but then after watching it again, a couple of weeks later, it's like, Oh no, this is a big problem. We need to move something from act four to act one and just end up rejigging the thing until it works. And that takes, yeah, that takes a lot of time. We're speaking on the phone today with Megan Wenberg. We're discussing the film, the killing of, Fer- of Philip Boudreaux. You know, you can catch it on CBC Gem if you want to be able to stream it. There's also a premiere day that's going to happen on CBC Point of View Doc. You know, you challenged yourself, Megan, between directing narrative shorts and also documentary films. You know, how do you shift your approach as a filmmaker from project to project and yet still kind of maintain elements of your own style and tone? I think for me, I really like, like, documentary is where I still feel the most at home. It's um, when I was finishing my journalism degree at King's, I got to make a short documentary and I was hooked because it felt like it gave me an opportunity to tell a story, but tell a story in a way where I could go deeper than daily news would allow. And I really liked that. And I also really liked the aspect of like visual storytelling that documentary filmmaking affords. So that I think probably also how I approach uh, drama to an extent. Like I like that I can't completely plan it and that I don't know completely what's going to happen and that I'm constantly having to adapt. That can obviously be challenging. It can completely go sideways, but there's also something that feels honest about it in that it's less me trying to orchestrate something and more me trying to respond to something or give space to something that's happening or that someone's saying. We're speaking on the phone today with Megan Wenberg. We're discussing her documentary, The Killing of Philip Boudreau. You can catch it as part of CBC's Docs POV, but you can also scream it, uh, stream it anytime you want on CBC Gem on their app. Megan, uh, for people that are listening to the interview today, uh, hopefully they're going to go and stream the show or or check it out on CBC. Talk to us a little bit maybe about uh, other work that you've done that people could check out uh, beyond the killing of Philip Boudreaux. Oh, sure. So um, the last film that I did um, right before right before this one was called uh, Drag Kids, and it's kind of 180 degree from this one. It's a feature-length documentary, although there's also a 44-minute version on CBC Gem, um, which is also by POV, and it follows four preteen drag queens as they're preparing for the biggest show of their lives at Montreal Pride, and that was so much fun to make, and it's a fun, uplifting doc about finding community and the importance of self-expression. All right, Megan, we really appreciate you making the time uh, to talk to us today. The film itself uh, is a fantastic piece. I think it really kind of peels back the the veil of us seeming like this kind of a folksy idea that a lot of people maybe out on the West Coast have about life in the East Coast. It's a little bit of a darker side, but it also kind of reveals some of the the real uh, life issues that people are dealing with in those smaller communities and uh, and genuine challenges in living in them. Well, well, thank you so much for your time.